Well, it, it seems to me that the, the readings this morning tell us this story of this kind of consistent, insistent, relentless God and what he's up to on the earth. And then, of course, when we, when we get to the gospel, it asks us to make a decision about that and tells us that these decisions have relational consequences. So when I think, what I want to, I think, get you to see this morning is that there is this divine intention going on. If, if we were to liken God to a sculptor and working on some sort of sculpture in the middle of the square in town, it would be very obvious that something's taking shape. But that's not intuitive these days. What's intuitive to me, just what I hear on the street, um, what I hear in conversation, what I hear in classrooms, uh, what I read in the media, is something more like this. I think what's more intuitive today is, is the church winding down? Is like the church losing its place in human history? Is it becoming irrelevant? Is entropy taking over? Now, there's a big word for 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. What the heck is entropy? Well, the scientists in the room know. Uh, is there a kind of essential disorder and uncertainty that's happening? Is there a kind of process of dilapidation? You know how you drive by a house in a neighborhood and you might say, oh, that house is dilapidated. Something like that. Is that kind of thing happening to the church? Is it running down? Is the church tending to disorder and fragmentation and kind of losing its place in society? And I think a lot of people would say yes. Anne Rice just famously said yes. It's done with it, she says. No more church for me. You know, grew up in kind of a typical Catholic home, became famous as a novelist, famously rethought through her rejection of the church, and now has equally famously said, no more. And so that's all over Huffington Post and everybody else who picks up on it. And it's all over the AP wire and everybody who picks up on that. So it gets repeated all over the world that the church is not worth giving yourself to, not if you genuinely want to be spiritual. If what you're after is being genuinely, genuinely spiritual, then you're going to have to find a different drinking fountain. Because the drinking fountain of the church evidently is not cutting it. And when you think of church the way most people think of church, like if we just said, if we did a jaywalking exercise, you know how Jay, goes, Jay Leno goes out on the streets, you know, with the microphone and, you know, just does his little word association games and stuff. If we were to just do that, what most people say when they think of church is either person, place, or event. So, for instance, here in Orange County, you might hear person. I go to Rick Warren's church. Now, I love Rick. I'm not picking on Rick. But just thinking of Orange County here. Or you think of place. Somebody might say, I go to the Crystal Cathedral. Probably the most magnificent place we have in Orange County. That's where I go. Or perhaps you grew up Catholic or around Catholics who might say, I went to Mass this morning. So when you think of church that way, personality, magnificent buildings, an event, well, I think, you know, people are questioning that. What genuine value does it have for my desire to be spiritual and for my desire to connect with God? Well, what these readings teach us this morning is that no matter what Anne Rice thinks, no matter how much sin, and again, I'm, I'm just trust me, I'm never picking on anybody, never. 
But, but we just have to say it because it's alive and real in our life today. No, no, no matter how much sin particular priests commit, no matter how notorious that sin is in the New York Times or the Boston Globe or the LA Times, no matter what's happening, lying behind that is this consistent, insistent, relentless God who's chiseling something out. The sculptor who's making something that is going to stand. And I guess it shouldn't have to be said that has stood for 2,000 years. And before that, for several thousand years, as temple, as tabernacle, as synagogue. It's not new that somebody would say, I go to the Crystal Cathedral. Ancient Jews used to say, you should see this cool new synagogue we just built. I go to the synagogue. None of this is new. It just, it repeats itself, and sometimes it sort of flares up, and then it kind of goes away. But lying behind all this is the insistence of God to create a people. Remember the movie The Blind Side? I'm no good at recalling movie lines exactly, but I just am remembering that scene where I think it's the first time the family sees, what's his name, Mike, Big Mike, walking down the street, and remember, uh, what is her name? It's just, woo, what's her name? Yeah, so remember Sandra Bullock's character gets out of the car and walks over and starts talking to him, and they can hear it, and she's starting to invite him home. And remember, the father goes at some point, move over, kids, I've seen that look before. Remember that? It's like, there, I can just see this insistence, and there is no stopping this insistence, so move over, Big Mike's getting in. And that's the kind of thing that I think is going on behind the scenes for us, always. And I think it's very important that we stop for a moment and remind ourselves about that. There's an old sort of famous line in Jewish circles that's not meant to diss Jewish moms. It's actually meant to uh, be a, a, a compliment to them. And the old line says this. You know the difference between a Rottweiler and a Jewish mother? Eventually, the Rottweiler gives in. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that's happening here, is that God just won't let go. And so, you know, like, who are we to believe here? I mean, Anne Rice says the church is just ridiculous. It's horrible. You should have nothing to do with it. And then I know there's some people in the room here who know about business, and so you probably know the name Jim Collins, you know, who wrote the famous book, uh, um, built to last, and then good to great, and then he wrote this little monograph called good to great for the social sector. Well, Jim Collins has said, you know, this is supposed to be, you know, Stanford educated, Stanford teacher, brilliant, you know, business mind, has said this of the church. It's maybe the best human organization ever. And that the church actually demeans herself when she compares herself to business, as if business has it right. Yeah, 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 name me a business that has no dysfunction in it. You know, name me a business that doesn't sometimes have mediocrity around it. I mean, we, we really do do ourselves a disservice, but really, at the end of the day, I think the point here is, is that this isn't Anne Rice versus Jim Collins. This is about the intention of God, the enabling of God, his constant chiseling and changing and upkeep and restoration like this sculpture working on something in the middle of town. Now, I'm quite sure I've said this before, but I'm also quite sure it bears repeating. The kingdom of God is never at risk. Now, again, we stop and say, well, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is simply the expression of God's being. It's all the times and places and spaces in which what God wants done is done. That's why Jesus said, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
kingdom of God is it's his rule and reign. It's how he expresses himself on the earth. That is never at risk. Now, there's just a simple equation. How then do we live never at risk? You take your little queendom, or you take your little kingdom, and you place it in God's. And you find a life that is derived from and lived in the kingdom of God. And then you are not only always safe, but you have there the potential for the kind of life that everybody says, I want to be spiritual, but I don't find it in the church. I think this is how we get that right. So then, I just want to say a couple quick things this morning. How do we get in on this? If there's this insistent, consistent, relentless God out there doing something, how do we get in on it? And the first thing is you have to see it. And you have to see it through, you know, the kinds of things the Bible calls faith or vision, or you have to see it with a heart to believe in it so that it becomes kind of a vision for you. And this is what Jeremiah is trying to get us to see, that this God, this community, this triune God of completely, totally, all-powerful love is riding behind everything. This is why Jeremiah has God saying, can any of you hide in a corner where I can't see you? Am I not present everywhere, seen or unseen? When God says, is not my word like a fire? Did you, have you seen this weekend the, the fires in Russia? And, you know, we see them coming down our hillsides. They're relentless. They're very hard to stop. You know, they just keep burning everything in their way. And this is what God is saying. Is not what I'm up to kind of like a fire that just keeps moving? Isn't it like a sledgehammer that bursts a rock? The psalm that I meditated on this week said this, that God presides in the great assembly, that that is to say that he sits over all the other rulers, sometimes called judges in the Old Testament. And so he presides over the great assembly. He gives judgment to the gods. Now, when you see gods in the Old Testament without a capital G, it means something like very powerful human rulers of whatever place they might be in society. And the psalmist says that God calls them into his courtroom. So here's the real deal. Maybe someday Jim Collins is going to hear God say, eh, the church wasn't all that great. But it was built to last. Or maybe Ann Rice will hear God say someday, you know what, Ann? I think you missed the boat here. But at some point, it's not media outlets. At some point, it's not professors. At some point, it's not popular websites. God is driving this. And at some point, as C.S. Lewis said, everybody's going to be called into God's dock. That doesn't mean a boat slip. It means they're going to be called into God's courtroom on God's witness stand. And everybody will someday have to give an account, not out of God's meanness, but out of this that he is doing something. And at some point, everybody has to deal with that. And so, again, the psalmist says that as God is doing that, he insists on his way and his people that they defend the defenseless, that they make sure that the underdogs get a fair break. He says, as you come into what I'm doing, your job is to stand up for the powerless and to prosecute all those who exploit the powerless. That's what God's saying to all the big-time human rulers. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And, of course, the writer of Hebrews tells us, here's how you really get a vision for this. You fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorning its shame. So first you have to see it. You have to see what God's up to. And then once you see it, 
you, you get to the rest of these passages, you get to Luke and you get to a couple of these sentences in Hebrews where it asks us to make a decision. What are you going to do about it? Now, when I was a young man and wanting to be an evangelist, I, I loved Billy Graham, and I used to read his magazine. Anybody remember what the name of Billy Graham's magazine was? Decision Magazine. Now, I know that decisions are sort of out of favor right now, and just evangelism is out of favor in general, but certainly asking somebody to make a decision based on apologetics or make a decision based on history or make a decision based on theology, I know that seems sort of old-fashioned, and in some ways it is, meaning it, it doesn't sit in our society the way it would have when Billy Graham became famous after World War II. But it doesn't mean that decisions aren't on the playing field anymore. This is precisely what the writer of Hebrews is getting to when he says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart, but make a decision. Let us throw off everything that hinders our ability to be in alignment with what God's doing. So throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, this is brilliant because it helps answer the question, why should I stop sinning? Because, you know, post-baptism, post-confirmation, why don't we just go on sinning? Post-being filled with the Spirit, what's the point in not sinning? What's the big deal? Because the big deal is not mere forgiveness, as I've said a hundred times. The big deal is you, you consider what you're doing, you consider your way of life, and you stop sinning. Sin simply meaning, remember, to miss the mark, to choose your own way, to transgress. What does transgress mean? It means God's trying to chisel something, and you keep moving. I keep moving. I keep transgressing what he's trying to do, which just simply means I'm trying to go my own way, choose my own path. So the writer of Hebrews here, when he writes this, He's not thinking about sin with reference to heaven when you die. He's thinking about sin with reference to actually being able to follow Jesus because sin easily entangles. It trips us up from defending the defenseless. How can you do that if you're mean-spirited? It trips us up from giving the underdogs a fair break. How can you do that if you don't care about anybody? How do you stand up for the powerless and stand against those who exploit them if you don't have a, an essentially generous heart? You can't do it. This is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. It keeps us from working with this insistent, consistent, relentless thing that God's doing. Now, of course, Jesus brings it just, you know, right down as far as it can be brought when he asks this question, do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? Now, am I the only one for whom that's a little bit of a shocking sentence to be, you know, read aloud in church on Sunday morning? You know, that our Jesus, the Prince of Peace, you know, this Prince of Peace is saying that he has not come to bring peace on earth, but no, I tell you, division. Well, what's happening there? And it's a very simple equation. You might want to write it down. Decision equals division. There is no other way. You either stop at the red light or you don't. And once you haven't stopped, you've then created division between you and that white line on the street. There is no decision that doesn't bring division. It always does. Jesus is not here talking about the routine kind of fights that you have in families or misunderstandings between parents and kids or siblings between each other. Jesus isn't saying, oh, that's all really cool. No, those are the things we all know that Jesus heals. 
I'm sure lots of you in this room have testimonies of healings between you and your adult children, or you thought your, your little children were going to hate each other forever, and now they, you know, they're getting along today, and mom's happy, right? We all know stories of that kind of stuff. That's not what's in play here. Let me tell you what's in play here. I, uh, Debbie and I got converted around 19. I think I was 19. I think Debbie was 20. I was playing baseball in college, and that was my, had been my dream since I was a little boy, and I got converted... Somehow, I was telling my dad on the phone, and God rest his soul, I love him dearly, but he cussed me out. I mean, I can't say in church what he said to me. Because here was his fear. His fear was that this Christianity thing was making me too gentle, and that it was destroying my competitive spirit. And so, a little bit living his life through me, and wanting me to become a major league baseball player, the truth of it is, I couldn't argue with him. Because all of a sudden, baseball wasn't the most important thing in my life. God was, but all I knew is I was getting cussed out for a decision I'd made. I mean, like literally cussed out. And I could just, you know, tell you, you know, story after story. That's what Jesus is getting at. That when someone makes a decision, it creates, I don't know, division. It creates space. You've moved. And everybody gets it. This is why when you have two unconverted people in a, fam- in, a, in, a, in a marriage and one of them gets converted and becomes a Christ follower, that's why the other person feels a little left in the dust, they might say. Or I don't feel quite as connected to my spouse as I used to because she's got this whole other thing going or he's got this whole other thing going. That's the kind of division that Jesus is talking about here. That anybody who makes a decision to follow him is going to experience that. And it has to be. If the world is flying upside down, Jesus has come to turn it right side up. And if you're flying upside down in addictions, if you're flying upside down in hate, if you're flying upside down in racial prejudice, and suddenly your spouse gets turned right side up, suddenly someone in your family or a close friend at work starts flying right side up, everything is different. And that's all Jesus is saying. He's saying, you guys can read the weather. You know that if the Santa Ana winds are going to blow, it's going to be hot and dusty. You know that when the marine layer gets especially thick, there's going to be patches of cloudiness. But you cannot see the crisis of who I am. You cannot see the crisis really of the impending cross. You cannot see the crisis of what happens when God makes himself manifest. You Jews for millennia have prayed for God to be present amongst you. You've prayed for God to redeem himself. You've prayed for God to restore his image in society. And now God's doing it and you can't see what's happening. That's what's going on in that passage. He can't see that as soon as you say... I was in the Qumran sect. I was out living in a cave, but I now see I'm wrong. That God calls me to live in public for the public, to defend the powerless, to argue for justice. And I've been living in a cave. As soon as you say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm going to be a junior high math teacher and soccer coach for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, now the whole Qumran sect goes, what the heck happened to Tom? Now there's this division. We were friends. We were all living in a cave together. We said that this was right. And now Billy Bob is out doing his own thing, or Mary Jane's out living differently. It creates division. There's no such thing as following God, he's saying. There's no such thing with cooperating with this insistent, consistent, persistent thing that he's doing without having this kind of sense of creating some division. But we're not on our own here. 
Hebrews says that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. That God doesn't call us to do something. He doesn't call us to a decision and then leave us on our own. But he gives us rather the means to carry it out. So it's this crowd of witnesses who have gone before us who are the results of God's work. The writer of Hebrews tells us that don't worry, God will be in this with you. He'll discipline you, rebuke you. Yeah, there's going to be some hardship. Yeah, no discipline seems pleasant at at the time, but painful. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That is to say, for those who are finding the effects of God's goals. Now, I'm going to go back to where I started because this whole business of righteousness and peace, I'm convinced, is underlying the present um, sort of tilt towards Buddhism, especially. Not so much Islam, but the tilt towards Buddhism. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me at all for six months, 18 months down the track to hear that Anne Rice is saying, I'm still a Christian theologically, but I'm a practicing Buddhist. Phil Jackson, the coach of the Lakers, grew up in a standard Pentecostal home and would tell you, if you could talk to him in private, he would say something to you like that. I'm a Christian Buddhist. Here's what he means to say. I still believe the basic Christian things that I was taught, but I found no genuine spirituality in the Christian church, so I've had to take on the practices of Buddhism to find the kind of centered, quiet peace that I'm after. And I just want you to know there's a reason every time somebody in the media, every time some famous athlete, every time some famous actor or actor starts talking like this in these sort of syncretistic, blended terms, the reason that the world has ears to hear for it is that they don't see in the church this kind of grounded peace. Remember, I've told you before that righteousness means alignment. So God's doing this thing. He's chiseling something out. And when people aren't aligning themselves to it, but actually living in really ungodly ways, it makes people go, the church is full of entropy. It's winding down. It's meaningless. It's lost its voice in culture. And peace in the Bible means shalom. It means an essential kind of goodness and groundedness in which people can see that God's working in our lives. So, of course, the Hebrew says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Study what he did and how he did it. Fix your eyes upon him. Now, these days and I'm going to be done with this, you hear a lot of this uh, phrase, a safe place. Do you hear that phrase or use it? Like somebody will say, you know, uh, you know, my boss and the environment here, it doesn't seem like a safe place. Or somebody will be in a relationship and say, this doesn't seem like a safe place anymore. It's kind of become a little catch-all for dysfunction or, you know, things that are going wrong. And it's become, you know, in my view over the last 20-some years, a kind of way of saying, unless things are safe, it must not be good. Now, I'm obviously not thinking here of people who live in abusive settings or children who are abused or anything like that. For them, asking, is the world a safe place is a different deal. But for the most of us, what I'm thinking of, you know, God's this sculpture. Well, you know, let's switch metaphors here. You know, the Bible also talks about him as a refiner's fire. The Bible talks about him as a potter, you know, working with a lump of clay. So let's just think about this for a second. Picture with me a potter, um, you know, sitting in her or his studio. You got the wheel, and, you know, she or he grabs a lump of dough. It's all wet. Plop it on that wheel. They push the pedal, and it starts spinning. 
So I want you to just ask yourself right now, follow me here. When the wheel is spinning and you're out of control with reference to its speed and whether it's stopping and starting and maybe it's making you a little dizzy, are you safe? When lumps of clay, little bits of clay start flying around the room and maybe you feel like you're drowning from the water, are you safe? If you start feeling a little fear from the pressure of the potter's hands shaping it, are you safe? When the temperature of the baking oven's turned up, are you safe in those moments? Like if you give yourself to this insistent, persistent God who's up to something on the earth and you allow him, as the writer of Hebrews says, as Jesus says, if you make a decision to put yourself in the potter's hands, are you safe? Even if it doesn't feel good, as the writer of Hebrews says, it's not pleasant for the moment, but painful. When you're not in control, when there maybe is a little stress in the process, are you safe? When God probes your conscience, are you safe? When he pricks your heart, are you safe? So he said the kingdom of God is never at risk. Never. And those who put their lives in the hands of the king of that kingdom are always safe. When they make a decision to do that, there'll be some division. There'll be some discipline that isn't feel good at the moment, but they are always safe. And that safety has both evangelistic and benevolent overflows. Because when people can see our essential shalom in the hand of this God that we've said we trust, I want you to trust me. The fleeing to Buddhism will essentially stop because they will find a Christian spirituality that makes sense to their life. And there's a huge evangelistic overflow as people see real life people who are giving their lives into the hand of God and they're being shaped and that shaping is being experienced by others as defending the defenseless, protecting the innocent, helping those who have no way to help themselves. It will be a huge bright light as Jesus promised a light that cannot be hidden, no more than you could hide a light on a hill. Amen? Let's all stand. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.